How's it, everyone? Welcome to a very special edition of Two Crickets on a Thorn Tree. Um, with, I'm here with my uh, uh, co-host, Gabriel Krauser, and we, of course, have a special guest today who we will introduce shortly. But before I do that, I just want to say that uh, our guest choice was very specific uh, because, of course, we are two crickets, and we thought, why not better to have the first guest on Two Crickets on a Thorn Tree be someone from the world of cricket? Uh, so without any further ado... <laughs> My co-host, Gabriel, to introduce our esteemed guest. Gabriel, go ahead, please. Okay, thank you very much, Nick. So I just want to... Uh, our, our esteemed guest is Buta Dipanoa, uh, and to get at sort of where he fits into my life before today, I just want to explain a little bit about my history and cricket. Uh, my... Uh, the, the person who taught me cricket is a man named Rian Malan, who I think we've discussed a little bit before on the show, uh, he's a great writer and journalist, wrote my Traders Heart and so on. And he is sort of like a brother to my mother and so sort of like an uncle to me, uh, a good avuncular figure. And when I was about five or six years old, he taught me how to spin bowl. He'd realized the money in writing isn't so great, much better money in cricket. And he saw that I had a funny wrist and he and he wanted to make me a great leg spinner like Shane Warne. Uh, it didn't work out at all. By the time I hit high school, my coach uh, said, dude, you should just stick to batting. And this was around 2003. And I'd sort of grown up loving uh, Kirsten, Gibbs, Cullis, Daryl Cullinan. And there onto the South African scene arrived Buta Dipanar, who had like a style that combined creativity and playfulness and good discipline. But more than that, I think as a youngster, there was something about how every time he took his helmet off when he scored a century, he just looked like a 15-year-old. He had such a baby face. And that was very relatable. I thought, okay, you don't have to be like an old man with a beard to be good at cricket. Maybe I can be good at cricket too. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I was a big fan when I was a kid. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, very happy to have you on our show. But we're not really here to talk about cricket. We're here to talk about politics. And <laughs> and and there's something that wait, wait, I found... Can I interject yeah? my own brush with cricket? Yes. My entire career consisted of being in the lowest team in my school uh, for one term of school, which I did only because my parents said if I did it, they'd buy me a video game. <laughs> <laughs> and I was... I'm afraid to say that I was an embarrassment to the... To the sport so it's probably for the best that i was not not in it <laughs> for very long so, so there was no match fixing let's just get that clear <laughs> no no <laughs> it didn't bite okay but so here's what surprises me and i hope i i i, I hope you don't mind how i'm going to put this Buta. but when i saw your tweet uh in response to lungi and Gidea about black lives matter and and south african protein cricket uh you, I'm not quoting it directly here, but, you know, basically it seemed like you were saying, you know, there's there's, there's a whole lot to learn uh, about political theory. And, and you encouraged sort of engaging with the likes of Larry Alders and uh, Thomas Saul and Milton Friedman. And as someone who doesn't know you, I find that kind of surprising because this is going to sound like a harsh stereotype, but I just thought this guy's great at cricket. He's a jock. And he's dedicated his life to sport. What's he doing thinking about political theory and engaging with these very heavy thinkers? So I suppose my opening question to you is like, how did you go from being a protea uh, cricket right-hand brilliant batsman to, 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 to thinking about political theory and, and worrying about it? I, um, I, I would say I'm a very inquisitive person by heart. And uh, although... Uh, I might sound aloof or look aloof a lot of times. I'm very attuned with what happens in my environment. So, and uh, an example of that will be that uh, you and Nicholas can have a conversation this morning and I'm, I'm privy to it. And this afternoon, somebody else can say something that I picked up that you two said and relate that the two parties need to get together uh, to discuss a matter further or opportunity further. And I can make that connotation. I don't know why I'm like that, but I'm naturally inquisitive. I love reading facts. I'm not a, a fictional reader at all. So I can re relate to people that have done stuff in a certain way. Um, 
I believe in order. Um, and so you sort of, as the as you are exposed to the world, you start, uh, and because I'm inquisitive, I start listening to opinions, to views, and you start making connections to what you can relate to and what you cannot relate to. And, mm. and I would say that in probably in the last five or six years, I've started taking a little bit more of an interest in, in politics, how it works, uh, understanding what where South Africa is going to, um, you know, to the point where I think about two years ago, I had coffee with, with Franz Cronier discussing mm. the country. Uh, how does he see it? Because we see so many emotions and emotional statements made that one doesn't really know what is the truth anymore. And, and, and that sort of got me going and, and, and got me to start digging a bit more, trying to understand a bit more. And it's a never-ending process. Mm, mm. I think there's something inspiring about that. It's nice to, yeah, it's nice to know, I suppose, you know, we all have second lives and third lives. Uh, that it's, that, that uh, age is not an issue here. It's never too late or too early to start thinking seriously about the the frames that kind of give a certain context to our lives as citizens together in this country. And it, yeah, I I, I was really glad in our little pre-talk that you brought up Milton Friedman because he is he's just one of these characters I came across when I was at university. Uh, and I was reading philosophy, and so much of the time, it was just about trying to understand what this person's actually trying to say. Never yeah. mind, like, like whether it's a good or bad argument. It's just like trying to figure out what is the argument here. And Milton Friedman stood out as the clearest, most accessible writer and speaker that I've ever come across when it comes to political theory. And I think that that's partly because he's tried very hard to work on his style to be accessible. But I think it's also partly because so many of the ideas are just commonsensical. Like, and, and, the, and it almost seems to me that common sense is one of the, the attributes that as, a, as, as human beings, we are losing. I, I, I mean, it, <laughs> Sad I, I always, but true. <laughs> it feels to me always, I want to say, but just show me the facts. Yeah. Leave the emotions. Of course, there's emotions involved, but show me the facts. Yeah. And uh, and and that is the the one thing that um, that people don't want to hear. People, very few people want to hear the truth. Mm. Mm. Okay. So, so I, yeah. Sorry, Nick. Political discussions today. They're based on an underlying assumption that's never really proven. It's just kind of what people expect to be true. Um, like, I think, I think this is something you raised, which is you, you, you mentioned that the number of, of, of unarmed uh, black men who've been killed in the, the US, uh, by the police is relatively low, but there's sort of a just inbuilt assumption, I think, in most of the discussion that this number must be very high, uh, mm. and, and, uh, you know, you know, sort of major cause of death for people. Um, and yet we, we have these narratives that sort of emerge I'll never really put to the test and attempt to take a perhaps a more a slower, more introspective look at the foundations of these narratives can get well quite a Nick, we're losing you a bit there, so I'm just gonna cut in. Uh I think Nick's got a bit of a tricky connection. Sorry, Nick, we, we lost you just Sorry. towards the end there. Yeah, I, I was just saying that uh, anyone who sort of challenges these these uh, these uh, these kind of assumptions that a lot of these narratives are built on can come in for a little bit of flack. Yeah. So, uh, uh, sorry, Gabriel. Yeah. So I so I feel like let let let's get into the flack that you've been subjected to, Buddha. Um And I just want to give one bit of context before we get into that about how I think a difficult conversation about sport can be well handled. So last year, two years ago, the Institute of Race Relations did a survey, demographically representative, class, race, gender, everything. And one of the questions we asked is, do you think that our national sports teams should have quotas or should you just get the best players for the job? 
And we found 93, 94% of South Africans said, no, 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 we want the best players. We want to win. Uh, and that was true across races. And, and that was an exciting finding for me because when I look at the professional media guys, the people who are being paid to be tastemakers and, 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 and use their amplifiers to broadcast their opinions, I see something very different. But looking at ordinary South Africans, it seems like we like winning. And then in 2019, at the start of the year, we're going into a Rugby World Cup year. It's always a big thing in South Africa. And for the last three World Cups, there's been huge issues around race. You know, we've had teams nearly not get their visas to travel overseas because they're not demographically representative. We've had coaches having their knuckles wrapped. We've had all kinds of issues. And so, of course, the journalists went to Siakalisi, who at the time had become captain because our last two captains had become injured. You know, he was no one's idea of like a first choice captain. But there he was, yoked with this heavy responsibility. And if nothing else, that guy has chias and workload and like a fabulous ethic. And so because he's in this position of responsibility, journalists go to him and they say, hey, so do you think there should be quotas at the Springbok level? And he said, no. I really, that is not on. We need to, we need to have ev the best man for the best position. And we need to be not thinking about that. We need to be thinking about how we can work together as a team and win. And I thought his answer was brave because it invited a backlash and he got a backlash uh, from politicians and from media pundits. But at the same time, it was speaking to values that I think we as most South Africans share. Mm. So we're in a similar context in 2020 where Black Lives Matter has become a movement that's overwhelmed the world's sort of public square. It's a conversation everyone feels like they need to have. And some journalists go to Lungingidi, who is peaking young at his career. I don't want to say peaking like he's not got further to go, but his accomplishments are stellar for someone who's so young. And that's great. And so he should be someone that journalists are going to, to ask questions. Uh, and they ask him, you know, should we be having this BLM conversation at pro-tier cricket levels? Should we be supporting these guys? And he, and he comes out with an answer that I think can be read a few ways, uh, but he sort of says, yes, you know, we, we, we want to endorse this and we need to have a conversation. And, and you came in on Twitter to say, you know, let's, let's, let's try and inform our conversation with some reference to some facts, to some proper analysis coming from some very credible uh, US top thinkers. And the backlash has been harsh, not just on social media, but like at the level of a Sunday Times editorial coming out today with the headline, uh, Dipinar and what nonsense is this from Simcox and Dipinar? And it's a pretty short piece and maybe I'll read some of it out just now. But, you know, basically it paints you guys as, I suppose, indifferent to the history of this country and to the social challenges that we have and and kind of as if you yearn for a return to the bad old days of apartheid and it just seems so far from i don't know it seems cruel and unusual and 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 very far from the conversation that i saw you, you trying to start are you surprised by this kind of response when you when you put your voice out there did you think mm -hmm that uh, that it would be smooth sailing for you? No, I didn't think it would be smooth sailing. I, I most certainly didn't think it will get the reaction that it did get. Um, but but then again, I you know, one ref, you, you reflect on what you've done. And obviously there's been a, lo a lot of noise around this, good and bad, because I've had a lot of people saying to me I did the right thing. Um, but but I do think, though, if one can get back to the facts, that's the important part. And as soon as one starts hitting a nerve, which I do think I did, <laughs> mm. um, you, you tend to get this type of backlash. It's unfortunately part of being in the public domain that, uh, that, that you can get the repercussions of, of, of what happened to me. But the important part is just, and, and I found it amazing, the lack of uh, intolerance of, for my point of view. And I don't think it was necessarily a controversial point of view. I think I raised a valid point. I don't think there are any facts that can be disputed in what I said. And I never said I will not support them. 
Mm. I think if you look at the end of my tweet, I said to him, I might disagree with a lot of what Black Lives Matter stand for, but stand with me with regards to farm attacks, and I'll gladly mm. support your cause as well. Mm. So it wasn't as if I dismissed it as just being gibberish. Um, and I think from there was the, was maybe a lesson to be learned that if you want to make a statement, particularly in a, as a public figure, this is the, the flip side of the coin. Okay, so shall we, I, I feel like, shall, shall we get into talking about um, Black Lives Matter and farm attacks sort of side by side? Sure. My feeling is that, um, my feeling is that all lives matter. Uh, Coleman Hughes, I'm not sure if you know this guy. He's he's a great young writer based in America. Uh, because he's a black American uh, who has classically liberal values, he's often derided by his critics as being some kind of race traitor. Um, but I think he's I think he's very centrist, and he, and he, and he's got a good point. Often, all lives matter has just been used as a clapback, is his term, a way to shut up any conversation about potential racial bias in the police. And and he says the problem in the American context is that America really does need to have a conversation about police brutality that's, that is directed against black and white people. Like last year, 55 people were killed by the police that were unarmed. 18 or so of them were black. Uh, 25 or more of them were white. There's a there's a video of Tony Timper that Hughes draws attention to that I think everyone should check out. Uh, who's, you know, 2016 he was killed just like George Floyd, a knee to the neck for 13 minutes. He was a white guy. He actually called 911 because he was freaking out. Uh, he was he had a bit of a mental problem and he couldn't get his medication, and so he's freaking out on the side of the road and he called for help. And eventually the cops came and they put a knee to his neck and they killed him. And they're joking while they're killing him and he's crying for help and saying I can't breathe. And that video was immediately released onto the internet, but it went nowhere. And so Common Hughes' view is like, if only Americans on the left could admit that there's a bigger problem, that uh, that there's a police problem, not just a race police problem. In fact, racism in the police doesn't seem to be at the forefront of the issue. Rather, brutality seems to be at the forefront of the issue. Then maybe they could get closer to solving the problem. Now, I feel like in that sense, South Africa's got the same problem, but just more so. Where Collins Causa, Petrus Michels, Sibusisa mm. Amos, uh, 50 people died uh, in police custody or at the hands of the police during our lockdown alone. 400 people die on average every year. 4,000 cases have been brought last year accusing of rape and torture and all kinds of things by the police. This is, and, and we've and got even a, more, yeah, sorry, and even more problematic than just simply the murders themselves is the ability of the of police to get away with a lot of a lot of these sort of things so within yeah. the collins cause case of course there was no repercussions and that for me is actually perhaps more of a problem it's not just that people get killed it's that then the people get off yeah and so and so the nightmare from from our point of view i think is that like our police like the transformation quotas that are set up in 2005 they've been exceeded 90 percent of the police force is not white if you look at top leadership levels, it's like 98% is not white. 90% of the army is not white. If you look at the top levels, 98% is not white. The generals, the commander-in-chief, Ramaphosa, not white. And yet, we've got like the Nelson Mandela Foundation saying, this is a Black Lives Matter issue. This is white supremacy showing itself. And that seems to that seems to get in the way. We've, we've got these two issues, but I'm just talking about the one issue first of like police brutality. It seems to get in the way of us thinking about what we can actually do to stop this. Agreed. If we, yeah. I feel in the same sense that, and, and, I, and I actually in, uh, I think it's News24 that actually asked me my opinion. And I, and I said to them, <clears throat> maybe I've been accused of being selective in, uh, on, on SAFM in terms of how I see history and and so forth. And I said, but in the in the same sense, I can say that Black Lives Matters are selective in what they deem important, because Collins Cause is a classic example. The very same Friday that our government pledged solidarity when George Floyd was was uh, his funeral happened, they didn't do anything about the perpetrators that did anything to Collins Cause. So some Black Lives Matter, if I have to look at the facts, and, and mm -hmm. I agree with you, probably 
the noise in the middle stops us from having the right conversations uh, about making it better for everyone. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, you talked about me talking about the farm murders. Yeah. I think everybody coming out of a certain ethnic group will always be able to associate with the plight or what is wrong with that group easier than the other side. I, I think it's a natural tendency. Um, so me being white, uh, me being from a farming heritage and alongside, it obviously touches my heart closer than what it might somebody else. Mm. But the same can be said for Black Lives Matter or a black person associated with uh, the plight of the black person. But we still don't get to the relative issues most of the times. Because of this emotional abstractionism. Exactly. So, and, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this All Lives Matter clapback is that in this country, the, the, the way that I see the case for drawing special attention to farm murders is that we have had politicians explicitly vilify all farmers, in particular all white Afrikaans farmers. We have hard records of home invasions that clearly are not just about theft. There's torture, there's torturous murder, there's it, it's there's just sort of quite disturbing evidence of, of of many many crimes that that go beyond I think what you can possibly explain by the ordinary we, criminal mind. Yeah, we had one just recently where I think uh, very little was stolen, if anything at all, in Wien. Um and a a woman uh, she's of Indian heritage, but she uh, was pregnant and she had her throat slit by the attackers, which was. Another one of these, like, sort of, it, it's it's so brutal as to kind of almost defy any sense or reason. Yeah. So there's a sadistic element to it, right? And 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 that it seems hard to disconnect that from the political rhetoric that says we're going to slaughter the uh, cut the throat of whiteness. Uh, you know, we're not going to slaughter all white people yet. Let's see if we get what we want encouraging of land invasions by the EFF, uh, apologizing for land invasions by the ANC. So it feels like it is a broad political issue. Now, I think, in my view, the way that I think politics works well is if there's a special interest group, as you say, you know, uh, uh, brutality against one particular ethnic group or racial group or one class of people, one industry, you know, there are special interest groups. And if people get together and they want to protest because they say there's a special problem with the special interest group that deserves national attention, then they can go to the streets and peacefully, you know, wave placards, make their case, have their voices heard, ask for sympathy, ask for help, ask that people extend that warmth of a human hand of solidarity. And we've only had one of those in South Africa when it comes to farm murders. And that was Black Monday. I think it was two or three years ago mm. where a spontaneous, you know, if I remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember right, there was just a farmer out in the, in the sticks whose friend got killed. And so he made a podcast, a little video from his car with his phone and just said, guys, you know, if you, if you don't think this is right, whoever you are, please come out and just show some some solidarity. And then that was scotched. I mean, the potential good that that could have done was scotched in two ways. The one was immediately to clap back and say, all lives matter. So you shouldn't make an issue out of this because now you're trying to make some special preferencing. And then in particular, this thing of my former roommate and in many ways a good guy, Nicholas Bauer, a journalist at E! News and 702, who tweeted out an apartheid-era flag and said, no, this is all over the the Black Monday protest. These guys just want apartheid to come back. And it turns out he apologized later. That image had come from years before at some private gathering that was completely unrelated. So it was a bit of fake news. But it was rehearsed. People in parliament rehearsed it. People in cabinet rehearsed it. And they said, no, well, you the, can't take these protests seriously because it's just guys who want apartheid to come back. And it feels like... The damage like done. We were so robbed of a chance for all South Africans to say, okay, yes, all lives matter. And here we've got a special problem where farmers are being attacked. They're extra vulnerable because they're vilified. They're far away. It's hard for them to get police help. And we need to do better to help these people out. 
And instead, they were just vilified even more. And since then, until now, like what is there for a farmer to hold on to as a, as a, as a fig leaf, not a fig leaf, as a laurel, uh, a peace laurel of hope to say, you know, we can still get along in this country with a promise that everyone's going to be protected insofar as it's possible. Yeah, it's a it's such a difficult one, and 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 I do believe that in our country, that the majority of the people, black or white, Indian or brown, wants the same the same outcome, but it almost feels like the the extremes of the political spectrum holds the rest of the country hostage in the middle. Mm. Yeah, do you think do you think that do you believe that there is a chance that so like if I look if I think about South African cricket, you know, one option is for them to just stay away from the politics entirely. Say this is too confusing. Another option is for them to say, look, sometimes we play in pink because we want to support the the sort of breast cancer and, and gender based issues that are related to that, that we try and, you know, uh, encourage people to rethink by doing that. Maybe. Uh, we're going to throw our weight behind uh, a movement that says police brutality in South Africa needs to stop. Maybe we're also going to throw our weight behind a movement that says uh, farm murders need to stop. Maybe we're also going to throw our weight behind a movement that says gender-based violence needs to stop. Do you think there's a, do you think there's real room for South African cricket to take that second road of not just choosing the issue that has gained the most traction in America, but an issue that really, the various issues that touch the hearts and, and lives of most South Africans, sort of one at a time or together in a kind of, uh, is there room for that? Or do you think the only option is for them to just stay away from politics entirely as a, as a cricketing body? I, I think they can turn this around to probably one of the biggest positives that this country has ever seen by identifying it and making sure whatever we stand for is inclusive of everybody. But I do think, though, if they do go down the Black Lives Matter route, they will polarize a part of the, the country. And I, do, and I do have serious, the bit that I've read up and looked into Black Lives Matter, I'm concerned about their founding principles. I really am. Yeah. So maybe they can use this as the highlight that they needed because there has been a lot of public publicity and a lot of uh, awareness. And maybe they can harness that to push it in a direction that can be inclusive for everybody, that everybody can relate to. And again, mm -hmm. I'm talking about that moderate middle class that actually is looking up to someone to identify with. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. I think and I think you're right to just spell out some of the things that disturb me about the Black Lives Matter values. They are an official member of the Movement for Black Lives, which is a policy endorsement platform that calls for the end of private schooling. Nicholas and I went to a private school. You did not. Uh, <laughs> but we, but we, 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 you know, I, I don't think you should be abolishing private schooling. They want to abolish the police, which I think is really they not want. in the interest of most Americans or most South Africans. Nick? Um, and of course, they want to abolish the, the nuclear family, which is another yeah. one of the, uh, the beliefs, which is, uh, shall we say, quite a radical proposition and one that yeah. is very likely. No, of course, it's not entirely, it's firstly not really possible from a policy standpoint, um, mm. unless you lived under a sort of almost totalitarian regime. So they're not, there's a lot going on in this movement beyond the slogan. Um, yeah. And we, 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 the sort of out of, there's this big group of, of people who kind of swell to the idea and they see the video of, of Floyd, uh, you know, being uh, treated by the police so badly and their hearts break because they see it as a legitimate injustice. And that's mm. fine and admirable. But at the core of this movement, the people making a lot of the speeches, the people driving the policy changes and the people, uh, organizing have a very different idea of what they're trying to accomplish here. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to see, and I mean this, the psychologist probably will be able to tell us in future how these fit in, and I wonder if we, we, we look at, at America, America's statistics are, 
are probably the easiest to get hold of and to be uh, and, and to be uh, scrutinized and and, and the breakdown of the family in the in the in the black communities. I wonder a lot of times how much does that breakdown of family have to do with the drive that we see from organizations like Black Lives Matter today, mm. um, and, and how much it has to do with each other, and if they do feed off each other and encourage each other. Um, as we talk about, one of the principles is breaking down the family. Um, of the literature that I've read about Black Lives Matter, and which actually goes against the conservative values of family first. If you look at the capitalist system, the capitalist system has been actually built around families. I mean, what do you live for? You live for your family. Mm. You, you, you a lot of times live with well within your means so that you can have the ability to leave your offspring something better. And, uh, and we see that in, in corporations that were built in the past in the industrial eras, that that is actually the basis, the cornerstone of the free market system is the family. Mm. Yeah, no, it is. And it's and it's and I think it's a value that resonates with a lot of South Africans at grassroots level who are very, very eager to leave to to save. And to and to tighten their belts and to do what they can to leave their kids with a better uh, future. I was I was talking last weekend. I was at the SABC, uh, and sort of off off camera, I was having a chat with one of the other panelists, and she was saying, you know, uh, she literally said, "There's there's no such thing as an honourable domestic worker. It's just not an honourable job." Because that whole industry was framed by apartheid and migrant labor and black women bringing up white children. And I just find that so hard to swallow because I know so many people, some of them very intimately, who are in domestic service and who really value their jobs, value their professional relationships. I look at other countries especially the UK, where domestic servants have sort of always played a very interesting role in their literature, their plays, their films. What the butler saw is like such a, an archetype. It's such an important person. And in a way, I, like domestic service is almost even more honorable than public service. Uh, it is. But because it's so intimate and there's so much trust, the more trust there is in a working relationship, I mean, and it's something I suppose to relate back to cricket. Like when you're in a team like that, you really have to trust your teammates. And I feel that with Nick as 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 my co-host here on, on two crickets. Like so much of what makes our work work is a trust bond, and that's there's just kind of no more trusting relationship than a domestic uh, uh, working relationship. And there are a million domestic workers in South Africa. You can't say none of them are, have honorable jobs. I'm sure some of them have really awful employers, but I'm sure many of them have wonderful working relationships. And what people really want is with their humble earnings to be able to improve on their assets. I mean, the story I was telling was about sort of just helping my, my mom's butler uh, get some plaster because he's the way he saves money is he buys bricks and now he's got enough bricks to build a new room, an extension on his house. And he wants to extend that room so that his two sons can sort of get a bit more privacy. Now they're hitting 12, 13 years old. And he wants them to have that. And he and he and and he sweats and he he wakes up at five in the clock in the morning so he can catch the train or the taxi or the now the special arrangement during COVID to 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 make his money to get that. But for a guy like him, if they if there is a lack of honor in his job, it's the fact that when he invests in his own house, it's an RDP house, so he doesn't have a title for it. So he can't be sure that he can even really leave that to his kids or sell it and, and let them use that money. Or, you know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, he's like deprived of that dignity that you get when your work becomes something valuable that can accumulate in value over time. Mm. And, and I, I feel like, I feel like, this country has such great potential. There's so many diligent, family-oriented, hardworking people that that 
that are willing to make sacrifices that I'm not willing to make. Like I am, I was clearly brought up too selfishly or too, with too much immediate gratification. Like I don't have kids. I'm 30 years old, but, but they're good people that, that are willing to do that. But we're depriving so, so many millions of South Africans of the chance to actually grow, uh, grow assets and, and, and grow the potentials for their children. And it seems to me like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how we dig ourselves out of that hole, but I do think that part of it has to be having frank conversations about the facts, about what's holding us back. And about yeah, I, I, I've come to realize, and, and what I say now, and I suppose some of my friends that are affiliated to political parties will, will crucify me. I myself find it difficult to associate with a given political party because I yeah. think fundamentally they all are flawed. And, and seriously flawed. And and we have yet to see a party in South Africa that can unite black and white on the moderate side uh, uh, clearly. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the DA was about to do it, and, and then they had an awful lot of tur internal turbulence. Um, I think the ANC or the ruling party is mo moving further and further left as they're losing grip on the country that they were democratically elected to and uh, so <clears throat> but what I've come to realize is that the change is not going to happen through a political party the change is going to happen by me and my circle of influence with the people I have directly related to me and the same in your sphere and the same and and I think eventually this group of middle class will will find something to unite with and actually take this country further and forward. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm a bit curious as into, because of course you were trying to do this, I think, with what you posted on social media. Um, so I just wanted to go a little bit into the kind of technical stuff of how this, this uh, whole discussion in the media got started. So you originally posted your thoughts on Facebook, is that right, in response to yeah. Did you tweet yeah, it out or, or no, it, it was a reply to an article about Lungi Ngidi in which Rudolf Stein, the ex-African cricketer, uh, made a comment to. And, and his comments were very similar in line with mine that not just Black Lives Matter, but, um, but everybody else as well. And, uh, and then I replied to that, um, uh, just being a little, probably a little bit more specific. So, so that's where the comments originated from. All right. And was that picked up then by the media, or did you or did you put it out on sort of Twitter or something like that? No, I didn't put it out on Twitter. It was, as I say, a comment, and that was picked up about four or five days later. And then I think as soon as it hit somebody, somebody took a picture of it and retweeted it. Uh, and 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 then I think it was about Friday, no Thursday. Thursday, every, all hell, hell broke loose. I mean, I had uh, I had probably about 10 papers phoning me, uh, radio stations phoning me. I had an interview with uh, SAFM. Uh, I, must, I must say they didn't quite share the views I have. But, I mean, I, I stand by what I believe in and, and what I said. And I didn't try and be controversial or exclude anybody. Uh, I found it quite surprising our the hostility towards it. Mm. Because it was almost as how how dare you not just go with the mainstream. And mm. and was the hostility just from the media personalities contacting you? Was it from the public? Where where did you feel most of it? Was it like a very social media thing or uh, very much social media? Uh, thankfully I'm not too much on social media and uh look, you'll you'll bash your head against the wall if you have to read all the comments, but uh so, look, at, as I said before, I try to analyze and make sure that what I've said, does it hold value uh, uh, in terms of its correctness? Is it factually correct? And am I prepared to stand up for it? And, mm -hmm. and it's a week later, I'm prepared to stand up for what I said. Yeah, man, I think there's something, I, yeah, I want to take, I, I wish I was wearing a hat so I could take it off to you because I think that there's something in South African in the South African public square, where if you if you go against the mainstream, there is 
a sort of network out there that is just waiting once it finds out about it to jump on you and garner likes by polarizing and vilifying and demonizing. And that I think is one of the big turnoffs to uh, honesty and sincerity and the kinds of frank conversations we need to have to to develop a, a culture of accountability and 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 practicality. And and I think it's I, th I think it's kind of weird, like South African, like a lot of people think, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Oh, well, someone can say that I'm a bad person, someone that I don't know and that doesn't know me and that isn't really paying attention to what's going on can say that I'm a terrible person. And that's like such a scary thought that then they don't say anything at all. And, and then we just stay quiet. And I think there's yeah, something I'll, nice about I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Sorry, Gabriel, carry on. Yeah, I just think there's something nice about a guy who who's sort of who who speaks his mind in in a in a pretty uncontroversial, quiet way, and then it does get caught out, uh, decontextualized. Uh, you do get attacked, but your your attitude now doesn't seem to be uh, like you like you regret what you did, uh, just because it's it's drawn some disses. You know, it just turns out that you can actually survive being dissed a little bit and that probably uh you know although it's not pleasant i don't know if i'm putting words in your mouth but it seems like your view seems to be that it is worth it after all like you know if you if you knew now uh what the you know a week ago if you knew exactly what the response would be would your would would you have done anything differently I think if I knew now what I did uh, a week ago I probably would have thought twice <laughs> but uh but in the same breath, I can't tell you how many people have said to me that thank you for speaking up how thousands of us feel but are too scared to say because yeah. you dare not uh, not follow the mainstream. And uh, so from there, it was positive. I mean, I think there's always a way to say something. And uh, are you breaking down or are you adding something? Uh mm. It, it is too easy to criticize. It's too easy to just say something negative in the way that it cannot be constructive. Mm. And uh, I, I think the, 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 the point that I made most certainly was not destructive. Um, although a lot of people saw it like that, particularly from the left. But this is what I again found quite interesting. And as I started following more and more the the political commentary in the world and uh, it seems to be always centered around the, the the western societies where democracy have brought great wealth and great prosperity to a lot of people and i think a lot of people in those countries feel that they've missed out on without actually weighing up what is the alternative um, Thomas Sowell puts it very nicely. He says the left believe that the system is, is, is incorrect and the system needs to be broken down, the institution. And uh, he says where the conservatives or the right-hand side of the political spectrum believes that we sit with a flawed system. The system will never be perfect, but there are only trade-offs. And mm. it depends what trade-offs are we prepared to, to adhere to. What gives the best results in terms of the trade-offs that we want? And uh, he always asks three questions. And I can resonate with it. He says, what's the alternative? At what cost? And, and show me the hard evidence, the facts mm. that it mm. will work. Mm. And there are very few of of the ideas that's flouted out there that can pass those three questions mm. with a positive result. Yeah, like disbanding or defunding the police. What's the alternative? How are you going to try and protect people? What's the cost? How many extra crimes, murders, felonies are there going to be if, mm. you, if you do do that? And, and where are the facts to prove your thesis that, you know, if you just abolish the police, everyone's going to hug each other like it's Africa burn? Exactly. And, and, you know, in terms of freedom, you know, 
Freedom only stretches as far as the next person's nose. I mean, in order for everybody to be free in a functioning society, there needs to be rules that needs to be adhered to. Free doesn't mean lawless. Mm. And, and those are the two things that are sometimes uh, people don't understand the difference between the two. Mm. In order to have a free society, there needs to be discipline, there needs to be laws, there needs to be order. Mm. Um, so, you know, the alternative is not a good one. No, it's it's not. And it this is this is precisely why one of my favorite phrases to describe kind of what I believe in is ordered liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, liberty as far as possible, but you need to uh, with enough order to keep it bound into uh, a, a structure which everyone can continue to be prosperous and free. Um, but I, I think uh, I think we are getting sort of towards the end of our, our discussion here. So I just want to hear some final thoughts from uh, Gabriel first, I think, and then Wurta, you can send us off maybe with a recommendation of something you think that people should think about, read, that kind of thing. Uh, so Gabriel, hit us up with your your final thoughts here, and then yeah, my final thoughts are I want to join the, I, I want to join that chorus of people that that stood up to say thank you for speaking out. I think that your message was uh, full of sweetness and light. Uh, the way I read it, you were saying, uh, if you want to be a champion to this issue, let's think about uh, a, a fact-based way of promoting this issue that's going to be helpful and useful. And let's also join hands on sort of saying that there's various problems in the society that we need to fight against together. And, and one of those does include farm murders. And that is one that resonates with me uh, at the level of ironic distance. I look from an ironic distance at South Africa's body politic and where do I see a big problem that doesn't get traction in the mainstream, that doesn't, that hasn't had a chance even once for, for people to peacefully be allowed to gather together without being vilified, to just say, please, can you, please, can you pay attention to this? And please, can we agree in a big and public way that people like this shouldn't be killed? And we did, and, and there's never been that for farmers. And we've had the converse where our president went to America and said there literally are no farm murders, like complete denialism, which feels crazy. So I'd, I think it would be great if we if we had more uh, uh, South Africans of influence like you just stand up and say, you know, this is not an either or thing. The fundamental principle is that, you know, every human being is should be equal in the eyes of the law that that whatever spirit, divine spirit, secular spirit that that makes us us is, is, is a shared and human thing. And that where you see political problems exposing particular groups to vulnerabilities, we need to give special attention to that and try and do something about it. And I think that that's exceptionally hard to do in South Africa. I think that we really are in a very toxic environment and it takes a bit of bravery to, to stand up. Uh, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, it, it does take that. And I think that this country is close to a tipping point where the sort of hypocrisy of uh, a media elite that drives a racially divisive message alongside a, a, a broad body politic that just wants what's good for all of us, uh, I think that sort of disconnect can be broken down by by more people just just being, I suppose, humble enough to to speak out and know that if there is a bit of a backlash that's not the end of the world that there are also going to be so many more people who 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 take heed and who take courage from that so yeah my my closing message is thank you man and uh, as much as you inspired me when i was a 14 year old boy uh by cutting and pulling and driving fours i think this yeah this this reaches me even deeper and i suppose maybe that's because i'm a bit older um and also because COVID has kind of disconnected me from sport. <laughs> but it does. It means a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to a lot of people. And thank you. No, thank you, Gabriel. Thank you, uh, Nicholas. I do appreciate it. Um, I, I do think, though, that maybe this has highlighted the fact that uh, Cricket to Africa can, can actually use this opportunity even more so to have a far bigger influence by seeing if they can have a drive that includes everybody and instead of maybe a particular group. I think um, 
I, I think the future of our country lies in 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 people that can find the the right values and the right vision and drive them past this noise that that uh, that that we see on a daily basis. I've just experienced a little part of it, but I do believe that there are enough people in this country that want the same thing and want a future and a good future for their children and their children's children. And um, I'll continue to be who I am and I'm going to continue to try and make an influence in in my sphere of my life for everybody, not for any particular group, but for everybody. And do you have any uh, any bits of reading? I know you suggested online, of course, in the original comment that people should go and read some things, but do you have any specific books or stuff that you think uh, listeners should uh, read, check out, think about a little bit maybe? Look, I, I think uh, I've mentioned before my favorite, Milton Friedman. I mean, there is wonderful uh, video clips of Milton Friedman. There's a particular section. It's a two-and-a-half-minute section of the the best of Milton Friedman. And it's a two-and-a-half-minute section where um, he, he absolutely, in the most amazing common sense, declassifies anybody that has anything uh, negative to say about the free market system and talking about the alternatives. He is excellent to listen to. Thomas Sowell is a little bit more factual and not as charismatic as what Milton Friedman was, but I enjoy him a lot. I'm currently reading more about ESCOM's woes in some of the various books that's been, uh, been written about ESCOM. And it's actually quite sad to see how the utility uh, has gone backwards. But in order to have gift critique on things like that you you need to inform yourselves and that's why um, I try to to read as much as what I can I love the factual stuff as I said but you know it brings me to the last point that I actually want to make and isn't it ironic every time we bring color into anything we have controversy mm. if we can somehow in South Africa find a way to remove color we see will automatically start to uh, lose the controversy. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's been lovely to have you. And uh, thank you for being our first guest on our podcast. Uh, we, we normally just do our, our own ramblings and stuff. So it was good to have someone else injecting their thoughts and views into our discussions. So mm. I, I really appreciate that. So thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thank you. Just, just to give you some context, the reason we're called Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree is that Helen Sussman uh, was the only classical liberal in the South African parliament for nearly two decades. And I think she described herself or was described actually by some journalists as being the lone cricket in the thorn tree, trying to chirp away at, at basic human values that cut across race and, and that find the humanity in all of us. And uh, we... we are nowhere near her stature, moral courage, discipline. We're pretty useless, in fact. <laughs> At uh, least we've seen now, eh? At least we've yeah. seen now. But, but today, we, we managed to add a real cricketer. And, uh, and yeah, so for, for our first ever broadcast of three crickets in a thorn tree, thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Kr Have kr a Oh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>